Hey everyone, Adam from the Mainline Podcast here. Today we've got a special episode, our first ever live recording via Twitter with special guest Parker Thune. If you want to make sure that you don't miss one of these live podcasts again in the future, make sure to give us a follow at the Mainline Pod. Enjoy. Welcome, everybody, to what is our first live recording of the Mainline podcast here on the Twitter space. We're trying something that's a little bit different, a little bit new, but I um, hope everybody enjoys it. If you're, if you're not familiar with us, um, I'm your host, Adam Jacquez, here on the Mainline podcast, joined uh, this evening by regular co-hosts Tyler Burton and uh, Corbin Polson, and then, uh, of course, uh, we've got a, a special guest with us. Uh, we've been doing our podcast for about, I think, a year and a half now. And uh, Parker Thune is uh, the first guest, I believe, unless I'm forgetting someone, uh, that has made it back around for a, a second appearance. So uh, we didn't run him off. But um, if you aren't familiar with Parker, you should really know his work um, covering the Sooners for uh, both 247 Sports and uh, also on the radio on uh, Sports Talk 1400 and 94.7 The Ref. Uh, Parker, welcome back to the Mainline Podcast. Thank you, guys. Always great to get the chance to sit down and talk some Sooners. <clears throat> well, Parker, we'll go ahead and jump right into this. I uh, want to get your thoughts, you know, kind of right off the bat on this 2022 signing class that Oklahoma just wrapped up. Obviously, there's been a, t- a ton of turnover at Oklahoma in the last couple of months with Lincoln Riley basically doing anything and everything he possibly could to uh, kind of get the program on his way out. Um, you know, obviously, he took more than half the staff with him to L.A., Kayla Mario Rattrell no longer here in Norman. Oklahoma lost the commitment of uh, Gabriel Brown-Dendy. And Parker, it kind of felt like we spent um, a good part of December, you know, kind of wondering how is Oklahoma going to stop the bleeding and try to salvage this 22 class. Fast forward two months later, Brent Venables and his staff just finished with the number eight overall recruiting class uh, that included 15 four-stars. So you're as plugged into OU recruiting as anybody is. How was Brent Venables and this staff able to get this thing done in such a short amount of time? Yeah, well, I tell you what, a guy that you got to give a lot of credit to in that regard is Miguel Chavis. And I know a lot of people were probably scratching their heads when the Sooners hired Chavis. And I, I believe that was the first hire that Venables made that became public because uh, I remember running across Miguel Chavis's uh, Twitter profile and all of a sudden there's his there's all his OU graphic stuff up top with the profile picture in the header. And that was when we all kind of figured out, oh, there's new defensive ends and outside linebackers coach. So nobody really knew who Chavis was. This was his first job as an on-field coach at the collegiate level. And he'd been, he'd been on staff with Clemson in an off-field capacity for five years previously. So he was, no, he was by no means a newbie in the coaching profession. But this was still very much a new foray for him. And of the four new additions that Oklahoma made on National Signing Day, guys, Miguel Chavis was the lead recruiter on three of those guys, Cavante Henry, Grayson Halton, and R. Mason Thomas. And when he got to Oklahoma in early December, he had zero commits in his position group. So Miguel Chavis was essentially starting with a blank slate, and he had two months to figure stuff out. And not only did he figure it out, but he was able to sign three blue chip guys in his position group on the exact same day, back on February 2nd. So, a lot of credit is due to Miguel Chavis, but I tell you what, it is incredibly remarkable what the Sooners were able to do in this cycle because rarely, if ever, 
do you see a program undergo that much turnover on the coaching staff and maintain anything close to a top 10 class? You take a look at Florida and Miami, for instance, two other schools you know, that just made similarly high-profile head coaching hires and two programs that have a nationally recognizable brand, right? They're barely sniffing the top 20 of the 2022 recruiting rankings right now. And Oklahoma's at number eight. They've got a chance to rise if they end up with Josh Connerly and or Lebius Overton down the stretch here, which I wouldn't necessarily hold your breath on either one of those yet, but Oklahoma's in it for both of those guys. Make no mistake about that. So there's an outside chance that Oklahoma could rise even further in this 2022 cycle before it's all said and done. So a lot of credit is due to Bob Stoops for his role in holding things together during that week where Oklahoma was without a head coach. Like I said, a lot of credit due to Miguel Chavis as well. And Brent Venables is that dude. And he's that dude on the recruiting trail. He's going to be that dude on the sidelines for the Sooners. So there's a lot to be optimistic about surrounding this program as you head into the 2022 season and beyond. Parker, the next thing we wanted to kind of pick your brain on was one of the people you just mentioned, and that is 2022 now five-star defensive lineman Lebius Overton. Uh, as you mentioned, it kind of does sound like a long shot that he does end up in Norman going up against the Aggies and the Bulldogs out of the SEC. But what needs to happen over the next however long this decision kind of plays out for OU to actually make a real play at Lebius Overton? Like I said, sounds like there's a chance, but a long shot. How do the Sooners close that gap? Yeah, I, I don't know that I would term it a long shot. I think the safe money is on Texas A&M right now, but uh, I'll continue to reiterate, this is going to be a battle between the Aggies and the Sooners, and the Sooners are legitimately Texas A&M's biggest competition right now. And I would not be comfortable enough to predict right now that Lebius Overton ends up at, at Aggie. Like I said, that's certainly where the smart money is. But OU has already made enough of a play here uh, that they're going to be a serious contender down the stretch. And that's Brent Venables and that's Todd Bates. And those two were, you know, they were previously at Clemson. Levius Overton wanted a Clemson offer. That was a school that he wanted to have in consideration. But, you know, at the time Clemson's policy was and is under Dabo Sweeney that they don't offer guys until after their junior year. So, Naturally, Levius Overton just reclassified. There was no opportunity for Clemson ever to give him an offer, but he knew of Brent Venables and Todd Bates. They'd been in contact previously, and then when Venables and Bates got to Oklahoma, that was one of their first priorities was reaching out to and beginning to recruit Levius Overton. So, again, I'm not saying that Oklahoma leads for Levius Overton. I, I don't think they do right now. I would say that's Texas A&M. But make no mistake, Oklahoma has a lot more than a puncher's chance here, and it helps that Overton's dad, Milton, played at Oklahoma back in the day as a lineman. So he's an OU legacy. His mom went to A&M, though, so he's an A&M legacy as well. It's going to come down to one of those two schools. I think ultimately what they've got to sell Overton on is development, right? Being able to get to the NFL uh, and be an impact player, be a first-round draft selection and have an opportunity to make something of himself, not just at the collegiate level, but at the professional level. I also think they got to sell Lebius Overton on coming somewhere and contributing right away, because the reality for A&M is they are loaded with defensive line talent, particularly among their 2022 signees. You look at the two guys atop the class and Gabriel Brownlow, Dindy and Shamar Stewart as perfect examples. So 
you maybe try to convince Lebius Overton that his path to playing time at Oklahoma is a little bit easier and a little bit more immediate than it would be at Texas A&M. And you also just got to flex your muscles and say, look, I'm Brent Venables and I'm Todd Bates and we know what we're doing and we can get you to the next level. Believe in us because we believe in you and let's do this thing at the University of Oklahoma. I love that. Um, Hey, if anyone's joining us here, uh, feel free to drop into our DMs here. If you have some questions for Parker or any of us that you'd like us to um, ask, we'll, we'll see if we have some time here at the end to, to jump into some of those. So um, feel free to shoot them our way. Uh, Parker, speaking of some other uh, five stars on the defensive side of the ball, um, two recent visitors to Norman uh, just last month uh, were, were David Hicks and Anthony Hill, uh, both five stars. Um, Anthony Hill, the number one linebacker, according to 247. David Hicks out of uh, Allen, Texas, the number one defensive lineman in the class. Um, if, if OU landed both of those guys, um, as far as my research from digging back, I think that would be the first time that uh, OU would have gotten two defensive five stars in the same class since around, you know, the early to mid 2000s. I think the last one was Tony Cade and, and Mo Dampier. Probably not the path that we want those guys to go to because um, neither uh, Cade or Dampier actually finished their careers at OU. But what type of impact do you think that would make to uh, for, for OU as a program and for Venable's defense to get both of those guys to, to end up signing in Norman? I mean, those are splashes. Those are major splashes. And look, neither are out of the realm of possibility. It's not as if we're talking about shooting the moon here for Oklahoma to land Anthony Hill and DJ Hicks because Brent Venables and Chad Morris, who's the head coach at Allen high school where DJ Hicks plays. Those two are very close. They go back a long way. And DJ Hicks has a strong affinity for the university of Oklahoma. I think that one's going to come down to OU Texas A&M and Texas. And right now I would actually say, OU has the upper hand. I know that's subject to change and we've got a long way to go until this class wraps up, but I really like where OU sits right now for DJ Hicks. I, I'm not confident enough that I would enter a crystal ball at this point in time, but I would say that Oklahoma is in the catbird seat with that one. Anthony Hill's an interesting case. And when you are Brent Venables, you don't have to do that much selling to a linebacker based on what he has done over the past two decades in terms of his development of elite linebackers. He's coached four Butkus Award winners. So to an extent, you can legitimately walk up to a guy like Anthony Hill and tell him, look, there is nowhere better for you to be than the University of Oklahoma. So from that perspective, I think Oklahoma does end up a pretty heavy player for Anthony Hill. It all comes down to whether they can secure him for an official visit. That's one of those guys that, much like DJ Hicks, he's going to have every school in the nation after him if they aren't already. And so... Uh, competing for one of those five official visits is going to be an all-out war. But assuming you get him on campus for an OV, that obviously suggests that you're in a really good spot. And I think Oklahoma can get there with Anthony Hill. I think they're in a better spot right now with Hicks, but I think they can get there with Hill. And Parker, moving back here closer to home, um, I know one thing that's kind of driven Oklahoma fans crazy the last decade is seeing some of the top talent in the state of Oklahoma Uh, across high school football, leaving the state to play at places like Ohio State, Michigan, Florida, et cetera. And I think one of the biggest eye-opening differences that, that, you know, we've already begun to see in recruiting is the focus on the state of Oklahoma. You know, the last few years, it almost kind of felt like the OU staff didn't put as much effort into recruiting OK Preps guys. And we're already seeing a complete 180 of this with, with the new Oklahoma coaching staff. 
You look at 2022, RSJ, Gentry, J. Rowe, Jacob Sexton, and then, uh, you know, moving forward to 2023, you're seeing guys like Micah Tease, you know, Jacoby Johnson, you know, Baya Job, and, you know, recent current commit, you know, Eric McCarty. Talk about how critical that is moving forward, keeping Oklahoma guys in Norman and just how big of a shift this is going to be in recruiting Oklahoma, going from Lincoln Riley to Brent Venables. Yeah, well, I'll tell you this much. Oklahoma is going to be pretty loaded as a state in the class of 2024 and the class of 2025. There are going to be some ballers, and there are some of them that will have OU offers within the next few weeks or few months. Like Oklahoma's not far off from pulling the trigger on some of these guys. So with that in mind, and particularly, you know, the immediate focus is on the class of 2023 and guys like by Job and Micah Tease and Eric McCarty and Jacoby Johnson, deservedly so, because you have a you have a lot of blue chip talent in state right now. So here's the thing. You've heard and you've heard Bob Stoops express this. Uh, he got on the radio a couple of weeks ago with my colleague Tyler McComas and Teddy Lehman. And he said, Look, my philosophy was always if we're going to make a mistake, if we're going to recruit a kid that ultimately proves he's not capable of playing scholarship football at the University of Oklahoma, we would much rather make that mistake on a guy that comes from within state lines rather than a guy from Florida or Georgia, Washington, D.C., Houston, California, because there's a lot more leeway granted when a home, when a hometown kid doesn't pay out or uh, pay off, I suppose, as opposed to a kid from a thousand miles away, Uh, because, you know, then everybody is sitting there wondering why on earth did you put all the effort into recruiting this kid to come to Oklahoma when he wasn't all that good. And, you know, you miss on an in-state kid. It's like, well, you know what? Uh, Didn't have to put all that much effort into recruiting him. And he took a chance. It didn't pan out. So in the public eye, they're a lot lot quicker to forgive if an in-state kid doesn't pan out. Because I think there's also a sense of loyalty that plays into it as well. And uh, folks will say, look, even if they aren't good enough to play at Oklahoma, they wanted to be here. They legitimately wanted to be here. And they still want to be here. And so um, I think particularly when you look at the construction, the roster construction of some of Oklahoma's great teams of old in-state talent comprises a large percentage. And naturally the game has changed. You can't employ the same tactics that you once employed in order to put a national championship caliber team on the football field. But when you have guys, the likes of by Job and Jacoby Johnson and Micah Tease and Eric McCarty within state lines, it's pretty inexcusable if you let them go. And I get that not all of them want to be Sooners. Some grow up and they want to play at Georgia or they want to play at Alabama or, shoot, they want to play at USC or UCLA out on the West Coast. And that's fine. It's, you know, you're okay admitting that you might not be the immediate, you might not be the dream school for everybody in the state of Oklahoma. But in the vast majority of cases, you are going to be. And that's why I look at another guy right now in the class of 2023 and Cole Adams. And I'm sitting here wondering when OU's going to drop that offer because that's a guy that is going to end up playing football at a very prestigious institution somewhere. And if that's not Oklahoma, I have a feeling that Oklahoma's going to look back four or five years down the road and wish they would have been a little bit more proactive in recruiting Cole Adams. And let me tell you, I think when Bob Stoops said, I would rather make a mistake on a kid from within state lines. 
I think that's something that Bob Stoops had to learn experientially when he didn't offer Wes Welker. And that was really what probably shifted Bob Stoops' perspective in that regard. And so now that you've, you've seen guys like that, you've seen guys like Wes Welker go to Texas Tech and explode. And you've seen a guy like Dax Hill go to Michigan, and all of a sudden he's going to be in contention for a first-round NFL draft slot. You don't want to sit there and play the what-if game. And that's the thing, right? We will sit here and play the what-if game for years and years and years about Oklahoma kids. We won't sit here and play the what-if game for nearly as long about kids that come from out of state. And so that is why in-state recruiting needs to be such a priority, particularly for a program like Oklahoma in the heart of the Midwest that traditionally produces a lot less blue-chip talent just in terms of sheer numbers than states like Texas and Alabama, Georgia, Florida, that type of thing. So I would expect, and well, and to a certain extent I know, that this new staff is going to make an absolute top-end priority of recruiting the state of Oklahoma and keeping everybody that's good enough to play at Oklahoma in the Sooner State and at the University of Oklahoma in Norman. Parker, shifting to one of those states you just mentioned, uh, there's not going to be a less of a focus on, on the state of Texas, and that's already proven true as Sooners locked up four-star quarterback in the 2023 class, Jackson Arnold at Denton Geyer. Uh, turns out the Sooners are not dead in the water when it comes to quarterback recruiting. Shocker. Uh, but, you know, adding, you know, with him to Ashton Cozart committing uh, last Friday, number 166 overall ranked player, according to 247. They're specifically speaking about Arnold. Typically, we see quarterbacks pull in guys with him. We want to play with this quarterback because X, Y, and Z. Who are some some playmakers, some other recruits, whether in the state or out of the state of Texas, that you got your eye on that Jackson Arnold can be a big uh, player for and bring to Norman? Yeah, well, the first guy you got to look at is his teammate down at Dittengeyer High School, Peyton Bowen, who's currently committed to Notre Dame. I'm not convinced that commitment will stick. And I actually do think Oklahoma has a really good chance to flip Peyton Bowen. And... Obviously, having Jackson Arnold committed is a big piece of that puzzle for OU. And Peyton Bowen has had an affinity for Oklahoma for quite some time. But I think seeing Jackson Arnold commit kind of renewed Bowen's interest. I also think that uh, based on what I know, he and the former staff at OU had kind of gone their separate ways at a certain point and maybe the interest had diminished. That's no longer the case. I think Peyton Bowen is going to be a very, very serious consideration for the new OU staff. And likewise, I think OU is going to be a very, very serious consideration down the stretch for Peyton Bowen. Another guy that I look at, and he's one of my favorite prospects at any position in the entire 2023 cycle, Jalen Hale, the five-star wideout out of Longview. For my money, he's the best wide receiver in this class. And he's got size, he's got speed, he's got athleticism, he's got crazy ball skills, he's got everything you could want in a wide receiver. And if you told me I had to build my team and my class around one wide out in 2023, I'd take Jalen Hale easy money. And so uh, based on where the Sooners are at with him, I think you've got to probably start working the lines with Jackson Arnold and saying, hey, listen, we need your help to try and lock down Jalen Hale because his former high school quarterback, Haynes King, is the starter at Texas A&M right now. And that's going to make the Aggies a very serious player. I like where Oklahoma sits with Jalen Hill right now. In fact, I might even consider them the leader. But if you're going to really push yourselves over the top and solidify that advantage over the other schools that are recruiting Hale, 
I think you got to get Jackson Arnold in on that recruitment as well. Parker, I do want to focus on one particular position group here. Um, you know, outside of seeing an uptick in recruiting talent on the defensive side of the ball, I think the biggest thing I'm going to have my eye on for the 2023 class uh, is going to be the offensive line. And I know that many, you know, listeners of the podcast know I've been pretty critical um, of how this position group has kind of been recruited the last two cycles, you know, only two uh, commits in 2021 and just two commits in 2022 with Jacob Sexton and Jake Taylor. Um, now, Parker, I know that the transfer portal um, has kind of changed the way recruiting is done by some programs. But at the end of the day, you can't rely on the transfer portal. You've got to build the depth and the talent with guys from the high school ranks. So, you know, I mentioned Oklahoma got two high school guys this year looking around college football. Texas had seven. A&M, BAM, Ohio State each brought in four. Georgia, Notre Dame uh, brought in five. So just kind of what are your thoughts on on Bill Beanbow and the offensive line recruiting for 2023, because this is going to kind of be a pivotal year considering when you see some of the other upperclassmen that are already in Beanbow's room, um, you know, possibly graduating or making that transition to the NFL. So this is a big one for Beanbow's group and 2023 is going to be crucial in terms of bringing in young guys at the offensive line positions. Yeah, I'll be honest with you, Tyler. I'm not sure it's that critical when you look at the grand scheme of things because the only guys that are going to be aging out are Robert Conjol and Chris Murray. Obviously, uh, Conjol's he's not really what you would categorize as a starter, even though he did make a couple starts this past year for Oklahoma. Uh, Murray's solidly entrenched as your starter at right guard, so uh, you're going to lose him and you'll have to replace him, certainly. But uh, I also think, you know, offensive line, is traditionally one of those positions where you're a lot less likely to find impact guys via the transfer portal. Now, Oklahoma has struck gold in back-to-back classes, getting Wanye Morris as well as McCabe Mattire. So there's exceptions to every rule, but I think you're right in that you're going to have to start taking three or four offensive linemen again every year in order to build up quality depth. And so looking ahead to the 2023 cycle, Right now, you have Joshua Bates committed. He's a natural center. Uh, He's the guy that's going to be plug and play at that position, and you would imagine will be the successor to Andrew Rain. Beyond that, I I don't think it's a secret. I really like where Oklahoma stands with Caden Green, the four-star offensive tackle out of the Kansas City area. I also really like where they stand with Peyton Kirkland, the four-star offensive tackle out of the state of Florida. So, Listen, one way or another, I do think Oklahoma is going to end up with at least three offensive linemen in this class. And if you can bolster that, you can complement that with another addition or two via the transfer portal. I think you're going to be just fine. I Right now, I think the biggest thing for the offensive line room uh, is just getting getting strong, man, and not getting pushed around in the trenches the way that they have the last couple seasons. And uh, the onus for that falls on Jerry Schmidt. I think you're going to see Oklahoma take a big step up in terms of offensive line play in 2022 because uh, the difference between Schmitty as a strength coach, particularly for offensive linemen, and Benny Wiley is night and day. And that gives me a lot of optimism to see what a guy like Bray Walker can become. And, you know, he's (laughs) – it's just never really clicked for him. And he's got two years of eligibility left. So while the clock is ticking, there's still time on it. I wonder if Jerry Schmidt will be able to unlock the best football out of a guy like Bray Walker. And if that happens, you're going to see Oklahoma return to the elite level of offensive line play that you saw circa 2017 and 2018. So I, I, I admit and I'll acknowledge and I'll agree that depth is something of a concern at this point in time. 
But I also think you've got to be optimistic about what Oklahoma will be rolling out in 2022, particularly because Mattire is a plug-and-play replacement for Marquise Hayes at left guard. And Wanye Morris is pretty much a plug-and-play replacement for Tyrese Robinson at right tackle. So you have a pretty clear picture right now of what your offensive line is going to be, and there will be competition, and who knows, maybe a guy emerges and beats out an incumbent for a role. But just based on what we know right now with regard to that offensive line picture in 2022, I think there's definite reason for optimism and reason to believe uh, that they're going to be pretty dang good. Parker, shifting back to the quarterback position, uh, it's kind of old news now, but obviously Jackson Dart decided to head down to Oxford instead of coming to Norman. I think one of the bigger questions that is kind of, I won't say looming, that's probably a poor word for it, but a big question that's on the radar for, I think, a lot of OU fans and hell, maybe even the coaching staff, is is OU confident in that quarterback room moving forward? Or do you expect, you know, another body of some kind entering in before the start of next season? I expect them to add another quarterback via the transfer portal. I think it will be merely for depth because I don't think it's any particular secret that Jeff Levy is confident in Dylan Gabriel as his guy. (laughs) He didn't even try to sell anybody on a quarterback competition. He said straight up in his very first press conference as offensive coordinator that, look, Dylan Gabriel is going to be our starter. And so uh, I I don't imagine that you're going to see whatever addition Oklahoma makes. I don't think you're going to see that guy – contend with Gabriel for the starting nod I think it's pretty well established that Gabriel's going to be the starter uh I would bet money on Nick Evers being your primary backup uh, just based on what I've heard about the impressions he's making thus far within the building so I don't know maybe it's a guy like you think about what Micah Bowens was to that OU quarterback room when they added him in January last year you know he was he was a good name he was a guy that turned heads but you didn't look at him and say, oh, well, you know, he's going to contend for the starting role here uh, right off the bat. And so I very much imagine it's going to be a guy that's somewhat in that vein where, uh, you know, if his number ends up getting called, he's capable of performing and capable of stepping in. But I don't think they're going to bank on him pushing Gabriel for the starting position. Well, for anyone that's joining us here in progress, this is actually a a live recording of our weekly podcast here at the main line. So if you've missed anything up to this point or maybe have to jump off uh, here soon, um, definitely uh, find us on Spotify, find us on Apple Podcasts, um, subscribe uh, and follow us on Twitter here as well at the main line pod. Now, jumping into kind of that quarterback discussion, maybe a little bit, but I, I think you know, there's there's a definitely strong feeling that Dylan Gabriel's probably going to be one of those those leaders of this team going forward, um, probably a captain as well. But um, from the 2021 season, all the captains have either transferred or are uh, going into the NFL draft at this point. So, uh, Parker, who do you have your eye on just from a leadership perspective that maybe you're going to be watching closely as the spring unfolds that could be one of those captains heading into uh, the first game against UTEP? Oh gosh, that was that, that's a question I was not anticipating having to answer. So let me let me noodle on that for a second. But I think the first guys that come to mind uh, defensively probably Jalen Redmond, just because he's been there and he's done that at OU, and he's a guy that uh, commands a lot of respect within that locker room. So uh, Jalen Redmond would probably be my uh, first round draft pick on defense for the time being. Offensively. I mean, I know it's kind of a cop-out, easy answer, but Dylan Gabriel, uh, you know, again, that's a dude that has played a lot of football at the FBS level. Uh, He's going to have the respect of that locker room, particularly his offensive unit. 
And he's just kind of one of those guys that's a natural born leader. You know, I don't think the Baker Mayfield comparisons are misplaced or far off. And I'm not saying he's going to become Baker Mayfield. I'm not going to sit here and say that he'll win a Heisman trophy before he's done at OU, but he's got that type of personality and demeanor about him. And he's also per everything I've heard, one of the absolute nicest human beings you will ever interact with. So uh, from that perspective, I think the first guys that I would look at offensively and defensively are probably Dylan Gabriel and Jalen Redmond. Beyond that, I don't really – it just kind of it, – you know, it's one of those things where, you know, I I probably wouldn't have guessed that Pat Fields was going to be a captain in 2020. So guys can emerge. It all kind of depends on how things gel for this new team because uh, there's, there's going to be so much changed one year to the next. Marvin Mims is another guy that I would look at on the offensive side as probably a likely candidate. But it all comes down to who responds to the new regime under Brent Venables and who starts to cultivate that respect within the locker room. And Parker, I think when, um, you know, trying to project the outlook of this team going into 2022, trying to forecast the depth chart for next season, I think it gets pretty tricky once you get to the secondary position. Um, you know, Oklahoma loses DTY to the NFL. Pat Fields is at Stanford. Latrell McCutcheon goes to USC. Uh, you know, we've got a solid group of incoming freshmen, um, three transfers, and a talented group of young guys uh, coming back to go along with Key Lawrence and Woody Washington. I think that those are probably the two guys that you can go ahead and pencil in as, you know, being two of the five defensive backs on the back end of Venable's defense. So um, just kind of give us your early thoughts on this secondary and what Jay Valai and Brandon Paul could be looking to do going into 2022. Yeah, well, I think a lot uh, about the secondary picture depends on what scheme Brent Venables ends up running because uh, you look at what he was doing at Clemson, it was kind of a modified nickel type of package where you could have categorized it as a four, two, five, but also a four, three and that your third linebacker was also kind of your nickel. So you had a hybrid type of player in that role. And as I look at the roster right now, I very easily think that could be somebody like Jaron Kanak. In fact, I think he's probably the, the guy that's best suited for that just based on what he brings to the table from a physical standpoint. Uh, but in that secondary right now, I agree. I think you can safely pencil in Key Lawrence and Woody Washington as your starters. Uh, Washington, obviously, at the uh, outside corner. And I, I, I think Lawrence could play either safety position. I like him at strong just because I think he has a lot of the same traits that Delarian Turner Yell had. And it just makes sense to let him roam free up there. Uh, I think DJ Graham is going to be pushed pretty heavily by C.J. Colden for his starting role at cornerback, if I had to guess. And I do think Trey Morrison is a guy that's going to be starting in some capacity, whether that's at safety or whether that's a corner. Even if he's not starting, you're going to see a lot of him. He will get a lot of snaps because he's a four-year starter coming from North Carolina. So he's immediately I, – I would have to check the notes on this, but I think he is the most experienced player on Oklahoma's defense. And so it's a guy like that that you look at as one of those plug-and-play solutions – in replacing the likes of a Pat Fields or a Delarian Turner yell. So uh, again, until spring practice opens and we kind of start to get a sense of where these guys are working under Jay Valai and what his vision uh, for this secondary is and Brent Venable's larger vision for the defense as a whole, uh, there's not a whole lot in terms of tangible prognostication that I can offer. But like I said, I think Trey Morrison uh, is going to play a lot of football for the Sooners this fall. And I do expect C.J. Colton, the Wyoming transfer, 
uh, to at least push DJ Graham for starting duty. Hey guys, if you have some questions you'd like us to ask Parker, um, certainly feel free to send those to us uh, in a DM here on Twitter. Um, now, Parker, I've got a little bit of a, a little bit of a fun one for you because uh, I know you're from the 402. Uh, Nebraska for anyone who doesn't know the area code and a lot of Sooner fans are going to be headed up uh, to Lincoln maybe some of them going through Omaha but I'm curious if you have any particular recommendations uh, of you know must see or must do or must eat places um, that Sooner fans should be uh, looking to put on their to-do list. (laughs) I tell you what I haven't been to a game at Memorial Stadium up in Nebraska since 2008 I went to see Nebraska and Kansas and it was probably 10 degrees that day I remember they ran a fake field goal with Alex Henry the kicker and Indomitian Sue caught a touchdown pass so uh, that was that was quite a memorable guy I want to say Nebraska won that one 45 to 35 if I remember correctly so uh, that's that's quite a game day experience those fans as I'm sure y'all are aware they are fervent and they are devoted regardless of how good or how bad their football team is, uh, they show up and show out to watch the Huskers. So uh, I haven't actually spent a whole lot of time in Lincoln. I grew up in Omaha, which is about 40 minutes away. And uh, for those of you that are familiar with uh, the Sooners four-star tight end signee, Caden Helms, he's from Bellevue, uh, which is kind of a suburb of Omaha there on the southeastern side, close to the Iowa border. But uh, if you go to Omaha, man, uh, there's a whole lot to see. Omaha has, I think, per TripAdvisor, the world's number one zoo, the Henry Door. So, like, if you're a if you're a zoo person, go check that out. But, uh, gosh, offhand, I kind of put me on the spot here. Uh, if you're looking for food, uh, quite a quite a few spots for cuisine uh, that I would recommend. So, if you're actually curious about where to eat in Omaha, just DM me after the fact, and I'll give you all the recommendations there. But, yeah, game day in Lincoln quite an experience regardless of how good the Huskers are Uh, those fans are going to fill up the state I do think it's really cool how I don't know if y'all have seen this circulate on social media but uh, they all hold red balloons and then whenever Nebraska scores their first touchdown of a game they all let the balloons go which I I I think that's a really cool tradition so uh, yeah I'm excited uh, because it's kind of my two worlds colliding you know growing up in Nebraska but uh, having spent the last few years here in Oklahoma this is going to be the first matchup that I've seen between OU and Nebraska at Memorial Stadium. So, yeah, I'm pumped. That drive, though, I'll say this much, not not super scenic. Not a very uh, picturesque drive for seven hours between Norman, Oklahoma, and Lincoln, Nebraska. Well, Parker, this this might be, you know, us too early in the process to, to maybe even answer this, but I did kind of want to ask you, you know, how the recruiting philosophy under this current staff is going to change. I know at Clemson, the philosophy that, you know, Brent Venables was, you know, kind of lived by, you know, is regardless of stars or other offers, they recruit the evaluation based off of what the, you know, what that recruit can do and what they forecast he can do, you know, for, for Clemson whenever he makes it on campus. So um, I, I know that NIL is playing a big, uh, a big role right now across the landscape of college football in terms of recruiting. Um, there's a couple schools just to the south of us uh, down in College Station in Austin that are kind of cleaning up uh, in terms of NIL and getting guys on campus. So uh, w- what's the recruiting philosophy going to be like? I mean, is it going to be like what, you know, Venable said, is it going to be strictly relationship driven or, 
Uh, is OU going to have to figure out a way, um, you know, for lack of a better word, to become a little bit more, you know, transactional in, in a sense when trying to compete with some of the upper echelon teams um, that have kind of kicked ass in recruiting over the last five to ten years? Yeah, I think, you know, naturally every single school is going to have to adapt to the new era of college football and the demands of the recruiting landscape as it pertains to NIL. But here's the crucial advantage that I think Oklahoma has in that capacity. And here's why I think NIL actually isn't going to be all that crucial for Oklahoma on the recruiting trail is because you think about a school like Texas A&M, just to pick one example, right? Because they're recruiting the best right now out of any program in America, particularly when you look at the, the class that they just signed in the 2022 cycle. But you know what Texas A&M can't do in their recruiting process, they can't just they just can't, they can't flat out walk into your house and say, "Look, we're Texas A&M." You know that doesn't carry any weight. Brent Venables and Todd Bates and Jeff Levy, Jay Valai, all these assistants, anybody recruiting for Oklahoma, they can walk into your living room and say, "Hey, we're Oklahoma," and that carries weight. And the OU brand, the OU logo, the OU tradition—that's going to carry a lot of weight with a lot of these kids that they're pursuing, particularly when you're talking about the fact that you have so many coaches that have proven so, so good at developing close interpersonal relationships with these kids. Everybody speaks so highly of Brent Venables. I was talking to a kid not 30 minutes ago that's going to be a five-star in the 2024 class, and the only guy he wanted to talk about was Todd Bates. He loves Todd Bates. I tried to steer the conversation in a thousand different generic directions. It always came back to Todd Bates. So I think a relationship-driven and a tradition-driven recruiting philosophy is something that not every school can offer. It's something that not every school can hang their hat on. Oklahoma is one of the few that can. And I think that's the reason why they're poised to recruit so well with when you have guys that embrace the vision and embrace the tradition and embrace the program the way that Brent Venables and his assistants are doing. I, I, and again, I think that's kind of one of the interesting things. It kind of almost feels like, and again, you can speak on this better than anybody, that you know priorities for, for high school recruits, and it almost kind of feels like it's changed, especially over the last five to ten years, because – um, it almost, I almost get the sense that, you know, as a high school kid coming out of, you know, uh, graduating and going to college, it's maybe not as focused about, you know, winning championships or wanting to go to a program that's rich on tradition and has a long, you know, long tradition of winning. It's more now about, you know, where can I go that's going to get me to the NFL? Where can I go that's, you know, going to, you know, provide the best experience over the next three to four years? Um, so that's just kind of one interesting aspect that I think, you know, at least from the outside looking in, it kind of feels like the world of recruiting in terms of priorities to these kids. It almost feels like it's changing in a sense. Yeah, it is changing and it's going to continue to change. And that's part of the nature of the beast these days. Right. We're talking about uh, the digital age. We're talking about I mean, shoot, did anybody would anybody have <laughs> like if you if you 10 years ago mentioned a commitment edit or a commitment video to anybody, they'd have looked at you sideways, you know? And so the entire landscape of recruiting is going to continue to evolve and schools are going to have to evolve with it. But one of those things, like I said, that's evergreen is being able to look a kid straight in the eye and say, look, we're Oklahoma. That's never going to change. And 50 conference championships, seven national titles, seven Heisman winners, those aren't going anywhere. 
And that's something as a program you're always going to be able to hang your hat on. Parker, I want to get into a question that I asked halfway jokingly, halfway not, because I find myself remiss if I can't, uh, you know, throw a jab at the previous regime every now and then. But let's say, you know, roles are, are reversed and Lincoln Riley is having to deal with the quarterback room just like Brent Venables is right now. How long into the offseason until he's trying to convince the media and the fan base that Ralph Rucker and Dylan Gabriel are in a true quarterback battle? <laughs> I just I, I think it's funny, man, that the one year Lincoln really didn't try to sell us all on a quarterback competition was the one year that there was actually a guy in that room that was every bit as good as the guy that he ended up naming the starter. <laughs> and that was obviously in 2021 when Lincoln really he didn't even try to pound the Caleb Williams drum. That was Spencer Rattler's job from the get go in fall camp, even though, you know, those of us that kind of had behind the scenes knowledge of what was going on day to day in practice, like it, it was, it was no secret that Caleb Williams was turning heads. It was no secret that he was every bit as good, if not better than Spencer Rattler. So when he ended up supplanting Rattler mid season, I, I don't think anybody that had been following the situation closely was really all that shocked. And I, I I've been on the Caleb Williams train since I saw him at the elite 11. It was no secret that that dude was really good, but uh, it is kind of ironic that, you know, back in 2018, he was, he was trying to make us believe that there was a quarterback competition between Kyler Murray and Austin Kendall, you know, like it's just, yeah, <laughs> it's bizarre. Any way you slice it. I'm curious to see how they, uh, how they take to that approach at USC. I wonder if there'll be a quarterback competition this fall at USC between Caleb Williams and Mo Hassan. Mark that down to the things that we'll, we'll miss about Lincoln Riley, I guess. <laughs> uh, Parker, we've got a uh, question from a listener here, uh, Trent, and I thought it was a pretty good one. Uh, he wants to know uh, which defensive player from the 2021 class uh, could you see making the biggest jump? Uh, some of the names he's looking at are Kevin Gilliam, uh, Damon Harmon, Clayton Smith. I'm curious maybe if you have any particular one in mind that you're keeping an eye on. Yeah, I really like Damon Harmon. I really do. I think he's lengthy, athletic, and he's great in coverage. I just think the Sooners are so deep in the secondary right now that I find it hard to believe he makes a legit push for – a sizable chunk of the action in the secondary this year, 2023. I mean, I've got him circled twice as a guy that I think is poised to make a huge jump, but no, I am on record saying that I think Ethan Downs is going to be an all big 12 player in 2022. And he was actually the only member of that Oklahoma signing class uh, of 2021 that played in every single game as a true freshman. And you saw his potential. He made more than a couple really special plays and had there been any reason to have him on the field any more than he was? I mean, you're talking about a defensive line that featured Perrion Winfrey, Jalen Redmond, Nick Benito, and Isaiah Thomas. The fact that Ethan Downs got as much playing time as he did is a massive testament to what kind of player he is. The fact that he was able to kind of sidle his way in alongside four future NFL, potentially future NFL stars on the defensive line. Uh, that says a lot about Ethan Downs, but, I think you can pencil him in as a starter in 2022, and I think you can pencil him in for a really big season. It would not surprise me at all uh, if that cat ends up with double-digit sacks. Parker, uh, shifting gears just a little bit here, talking about uh, the OU men's basketball team before we let you off the hook for tonight, but 
talk about a team that is just kind of snowballing in the wrong direction. Uh, looking right now, 13 and 10 overall. Uh, if I'm seeing this correctly, they've lost the last three. Uh, it feels like they've lost the last 10. Uh, it feels like Arkansas and Florida wins were decades ago. Give us just kind of your overall thoughts on where this team is. Uh, do you anticipate them turning this around, getting into the tournament? How do you kind of view this program at the moment under uh, Porter Moser in year one? Yeah, well, I think down the stretch here, you're going to have to upset somebody. You're going to have to win some game that uh, the public and Vegas don't expect you to win because I think that's really the only way you reverse course. If Oklahoma goes 500 over their remaining eight games and wins a game in the Big 12 tournament, I think that's enough to get them into the field of 68 because that would put them then at offhand, I believe, 18 and 15, which in a Big 12 that is probably going to end up being an eight, maybe even nine bid league, it's going to be plenty good enough. But you look at this team's struggles and they've lost seven of eight. That's why it feels like they've lost 10 in a row is because they only have one win over their past eight contests. Uh, I think the biggest issue and the common denominator throughout it all, you know, for most of the season we were saying, well, this team doesn't have a marquee scorer. That's what's holding them back. Then they get to Gallagher-Iba Arena last Saturday, and Tanner Groves is doing all the scoring. Nobody else can find the basket. So uh, it's kind of been a little bit of a Jekyll and Hyde act in that capacity. But the common denominator all year, uh, no question, has been turnovers. And that's what's held this team back is they get careless with the basketball. And that's not just limited to one player, right? It's everybody. That's it's a referendum on the entire team, uh, the fact that they turn the ball over as much as they do. And that's the thing that you're going to have to fix. It does not get any easier for this team hosting number nine Texas Tech on Wednesday and then having to go to the fog this weekend where they haven't won in almost 30 years. So, uh, yeah, they need, like I said, I think they need to get a win that Vegas doesn't expect them to get. They need to pull an upset here down the stretch. As long as they win four of their last eight, and as long as they get a win, a single win in the Big 12 tournament, I think they're in the field. It's just tough to project that they get that done with the direction that that team seems to be headed right now. So, I don't know. I would love to be wrong, but at this point, I'm not, I'm not banking on Oklahoma making the field of 68. Parker, I've got a quick follow-up on basketball here, and then I've also got a listener question that I'll, I'll pop in after that. But I know a big uh, point that we like to talk about here on the Mainline Podcast is getting a new arena for the basketball programs. And um, it, there's a lot of different things that go into that. But if money was unlimited, um, you know, the funds were there, what would a new arena or, or even if it was a rehab project of the Lloyd Noble Center, what would that look like to you? If money is unlimited, shoot Dome Owen Field and make it a multi-purpose venue. That's my strategy, but no, in all seriousness, like I know there was conversation a few years back about building them a stadium that would have been like 15 or 20 minutes off campus. I just, I don't know if that makes a ton of sense. I think uh, if in as much as you can keep the athletic department central and on campus uh, across all sports, the better off you're going to be as a university. And so uh, man, I don't know. I'm, I'm one of those people that I actually don't have a huge issue with the Lloyd Noble Center. I understand it kind of pales in comparison to most venues across the country, but uh, it can still get really loud when they pack it out. And I think that's the biggest issue right now for Oklahoma that Porter Moser is going to have to overcome is that 
Oklahoma, at least as far as basketball is concerned, has a lot of real fair weather fans where if the team's doing well, they'll show up and they'll make noise. If the team's spiraling out of control like they are right now, it tends to get a whole lot quieter and there are a whole lot more empty seats in that arena. So, man, it's it comes out. I think before you talk about starting to build a new arena, you got to get fans in Oklahoma excited about men's basketball once again. And Porter Moser was doing that in the early portion of the season. And he had his team, he had his team playing some really good basketball. And if you can return to form in that capacity, then I think that solves a lot of issues, not the least of which is scant attendance over the last few weeks. Yeah, it's pretty tough. And um, even as we switch topics here on this space from football to basketball, I think we lost about 20 listeners. So um, it's certainly real. Um, Got a listener uh, question here from Joshua Wilson, and uh, he's really wanting you to kind of characterize how the current staff interacts with the media compared to the previous staff. I think everyone saw a pretty big difference. Um, I guess it was last week after the signing day with how long Brent Venables uh, went on his press conference. Yeah, I think the cool thing is it doesn't feel like they're big time in you, right? Like Riley cut his press conferences off after 30 minutes and whatever questions that reporters got in over the course of that 30 minutes, that was all you got for the week. Venables, man, I was so impressed with Venables the other day because he stayed on that Zoom for over an hour and a half until he answered every single question that any reporter had to throw at him. And he didn't just answer it out of obligation either. It was one of those things where you could tell he was excited to share about the vision that he had for the program. It wasn't like he was keeping secrets or he felt like he had to conceal anything. But whatever anybody wanted to know about his vision for Oklahoma football and the direction that he's trying to take the program, he was all in on giving you every last detail. And I think you can say the same. And, you know, Venables is the head honcho. He's an effervescent personality. He's the exactly the type of guy that you want uh, leading the new era of OU football. And I think when you look at your coordinators and Jeff Levy and Ted Roof, those are guys that they're, they're not nearly as ostensibly exuberant as Brent Venables, but they're both two really stand-up characters who will tell you, they'll tell it to you like it is. And they're not going to sugarcoat anything. They're not going to obfuscate anything. They're just giving you the cold, hard truth. It's concise. It's honest. And they're not holding anything back. And I think that's the reason why Brett Venables chose Jeff Levy and Ted Roof uh, to be his coordinators is because not only are they excellent and more than capable football coaches, but they fit the model, the type of leaders of men that he's trying to populate his program with. Well, Parker, I know that one thing that we can all agree on is that even though the enthusiasm might be lacking a little bit on the men's side of things, there is... Uh, a women's basketball program that also occupies the LNC that's just crushing it right now. Um, and, you know, shout out to Coach Jenny Baranchek, that, that group. What she's done in her first year, 23 on the year, 9-2 and two in the Big 12. They're tied for first place in the Big 12 Conference. Uh, you want to talk about going a uh, complete 180. And that, you know, I think that perfectly describes this women's basketball team. Uh, you know, they, they completed the, sw- the season sweep of Baylor last week. They're number 12 in the country right now. Uh, a lot, a lot, a lot of things to be excited about with this OU women's basketball uh, program. And I, I tweeted it out, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Joe C. doesn't miss on much, and he definitely didn't miss on the hire of Jenny Baranchek uh, to, to lead our women's basketball program. No, he didn't. And I think if you told anybody that Oklahoma 
women's basketball was going to be in first place in the Big 12 at this point in the season, getting close to mid-February. There's absolutely no way you could have convinced anybody that that was the case, particularly uh, bringing in a whole bunch of transfers, a bunch of freshmen, and you know the, the talent that you did return from seasons past wasn't outstanding. I mean, Matty Williams sure is a premier scorer, but beyond that, uh, Oklahoma, it's not like they had all kinds of bullets in the chamber. And so I think the biggest difference between the Jenny Baranchek Sooners and the Sherry Cole Sooners is that they're just playing loose. They're playing free. They're having fun. And I know that's kind of a cliche to a certain extent, but that's what you can sense. And, you know, in talking to people who are close to the program and experienced the Sherry Cole regime and have experienced the advent of the Jenny Baranchek regime, that's really the key distinction is that uh, they just they felt very they felt like their style was cramped under Sherry Cole, where, uh, you know, Cole was, I think, a much more demanding in her coaching style, whereas uh, Jenny just lets him go, man. Jenny just sends him on the floor and says, hey, go do your thing. And I think that's why they've responded to her so well. And that's the reason why they're nationally ranked on an absolute heater right now and looking like a potential three or four seed in the NCAA tournament. Well, Parker, we uh, greatly appreciate your time this evening uh, joining us uh, as, uh, as a second-time guest on the Mainline podcast. Uh, I know we plugged your, your stuff a little bit at the beginning, but if you want to, go ahead and take the floor and let everyone know how they can follow your work. Yeah, absolutely. OUinsider.com is part of the 24-7 Sports Network. So uh, if you are a VIP over at 24-7 Sports, you have access to OUinsider.com and all of the juicy tidbits about your Sooners, as well as every other team across the entire Power Five, with the notable and odd exception of Missouri. We don't have a Missouri site. I'm not sure why that is. But uh, every other team in the Power Five, we got you covered for. And uh, you just got to buy one membership. It'll give you access to all those sites. Be sure if, if you do want to interact with the Sooner fan base and you want to be able to talk Sooners on the fan forums, make sure you do buy your subscription via the OUinsider.com platform, because uh, I believe that is uh, the, the site that you purchase your membership with uh, is the site that you're then authorized to comment on uh, the message boards and interact with other fans on. You can view the message boards for any other team, uh, but the site with which you purchase your subscription is the lone site where you're actually able to make your own comments uh, and weigh in with your own thoughts. So uh, yeah, head there, OUinsider.com. Obviously uh, many of you follow me on Twitter. If you don't, you can just tap my little icon right there and uh, stay up to date. I am uh, weekly keeping tabs on all things Sooners as well as getting out there on the recruiting trail, uh, touching base with players all across the Midwest, uh, just to try and, uh, get the feel for what they're thinking in terms of their future. And, uh, that's one of the things that we pride ourselves on across the 24 seven sports network is, uh, having a beat on all things recruiting better than anybody else in the game. And so, uh, if you're big on recruiting coverage, there is no better place to be than on the 24 seven sports network. So, uh, yeah, that's about all I got. Like I said, uh, appreciate you guys and uh, definitely happy to do this again at some point down the road. Yeah, absolutely. It's been great having you, Parker. And for anyone that maybe joined us late, um, this is a live recording of our weekly podcast here at the main line. So if you missed any of it, want to go back and listen to it again, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. Um, we'd love to have you guys uh, subscribe to us if you enjoyed this. Um, give us a review on there as well. 
And of course, uh, follow us here on Twitter at the Mainline Pod. So um, that's going to be a wrap for us this week. And uh, we will see everyone again on the Mainline Podcast next week. 